Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. In this sermon, we look at Abraham's boldness when he challenges God's justice towards Sodom and Gomorrah. Further, we look at what God does to go beyond justice when he deals with us. You're listening to Beyond Hutzpah by guest minister, Reverend Galen Meyer. Our scripture for this evening is found in two passages. Genesis 18, first of all, verses 16 to 33. And then in the New Testament, Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 3. First, Genesis 18. When the men got up to leave... These are the three visitors who stopped to see Abraham under the trees of Mamre. They looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I've chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what's right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he's promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sins so grievous, that I will go down and see if what they've done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing. To kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike, far be it from you. Will not the judge of all earth do right? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I'm nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abram, he left. And Abram 
returned home. Let's now skip over to the letter to the Romans. Chapter 3 in the New Testament. Verse 21. Paul has just described the human condition. And he says, but now, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law, Moses, and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Hutzpah, as you know, is a Yiddish word. If I had to pick an English word to catch its meaning, it would be nerve. When someone cuts us off in a crowded parking lot to take the only space left that we've waited for, with blinker on, we might mutter of all the nerve. Our Jewish friends experienced the same thing, might grip the steering wheel and shout, oh, the hotspot. Though we usually associate chutzpah with rude behavior, it can also describe the bold impulse to do something good. Entrepreneurs, for example, typically display some chutzpah in bringing their dreams to reality. Steven Spielberg, director of such films as E.T., Jaws, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and others displayed entrepreneurial chutzpah already at age 17, or so he claims. In a Time magazine interview back in 1985, he describes how he put on a suit and tie, packed his dad's old briefcase with a sandwich and two candy bars, and talked his way past a guard into the lot of Universal Studios. Every day that summer, he says in the interview, I went in my suit and hung out with directors and writers and editors and dubbers. I found an office that wasn't being used and became a squatter. I went to the camera store, bought some plastic name titles, and put my name in the building directory. Steven Spielberg, room 23C. In an earlier interview with The Hollywood Reporter, he says that it took Universal Studios two years to discover he had an office there. Now, 
Reporters who have since looked into the story say Spielberg embellished it a little bit, which I suppose only shows more of his youthful chutzpah. Now, one of the more intriguing examples of chutzpah in the Bible involves Abraham, boldly challenging the justice of God over his decision to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for sin that rises to heaven. It's neither rude nor entrepreneurial. It's chutzpah driven by faith. It all begins as Abraham sits at the door of his tent on a hot day under the trees of Mamre. Suddenly he sees three men approaching, instinctively knowing them to be a manifestation of God. He bows to the ground before them, calls them Lord, urges them to be his guests, and prepares a meal for them. The Russian Orthodox Church regards the three visitors as figures for the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Their most cherished icon is a painting on wood by the medieval monk Andrei Rublev. It features the three seated in a semicircle seeming to invite the viewer to join them. Known as the hospitality of Abraham, it's now housed in a museum. Reproductions of the icon, however, both in painting and sculpture can be found all over Russia. I once watched as Russian parents place their small children in a life-sized sculpture of Rublev's icon outside a church near St. Petersburg, and then step back to take pictures. The children in the sculpture struck me as a beautiful depiction of what it means when we baptize our children into covenant fellowship with God in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Though there is good reason for the Russian Orthodox view of Abraham's three, vis three visitors, there is also reason for the view more commonly held in the West, that the three represent God and two angels. Whatever view we hold, it's enough that we see the three visitors as a manifestation of God for Abraham. Perhaps the way the burning bush is a manifestation of God for Moses. After enjoying Abraham's hospitality and promising Abraham and Sarah that they will have a son within a year, the three visitors get up to continue their journey to Sodom. Abraham walks part of the way with them as God seems to speak quietly to himself. I should tell Abraham 
that I'm about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for their outrageous sin. After all, he's going to be the father of my covenant people. And he must teach them to live holy lives so that destruction does not fall on them. Obviously, God wants nothing to wreck his plan of grace for the whole world through the descendants of Abraham. As the two visitors proceed to Sodom, the third, speaking as God, tells Abraham what he's about to do. And Abraham is aghast. He responds with growing chutzpah as he speaks. What? Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all earth do right? And God seems a bit taken back. If I find 50 righteous people in Sodom, I'll spare the whole city. Having established that it's unjust to condemn the righteous with the wicked, Abraham proceeds like an experienced attorney. What if there are 45 righteous people in Sodom? Will you still destroy the whole city? What if there are 40? 30, 20, 10. Each time God responds, for their sake I will not destroy the city, even for the sake of 10 righteous people. And that's where the exchange ends. The Lord leaves and Abraham goes back to his tent. But that's not where the story ends. Next morning, Abraham looks towards Sodom and Gomorrah, where thick, dense smoke rolls up into the sky. The cities are obliterated. Only three people actually escape. Abraham's nephew Lot and his two daughters, none particularly righteous. There's no other way to put it. This is a troubling story. Apparently, not even 10 righteous people were to be found there. We're not talking about 10 very saintly people, mind you, but just 10 ordinary people, insightful enough to recognize the Creator in the world around them. Sensitive enough to learn, to read what he has inscribed on their consciences. 
and mature enough to live decent lives accordingly. And what about the children? What about the children and the infants? All of these questions must have passed through Abraham's mind as well and led him to challenge the justice of God. And in this, Abraham is certainly different from Noah and Jonah who are also informed of God's plan to destroy the wicked. What does Noah do? Gets out his tools and starts work on the ark, never challenging God to rethink his idea of destroying everyone in a great flood. And Jonah, he preaches fire and brimstone to the people of Nineveh, and he's miffed. Is offended when they repent and God spares the city. Scripture is ever transparent about the flaws of even prophets and heroes of faith. Certainly a reminder that we all stand in the need of grace. But it's good to ask ourselves once in a while whether we're more like Abraham or like Noah and Jonah in this regard. Do we have a heart for the lost of the world? Do we plead with God on their behalf? Perhaps you've noticed too how God's response to Abraham is different from his response to Job. When Abraham challenges the justice of God over his plan to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, God responds patiently. But when Job challenges the justice of God over the horrors that have come crashing down on him, God thunders, brace yourself like a man. I will ask questions and you shall answer. God reasons with Abraham and is autocratic with Job. The difference may have something to do with the covenant God made with Abraham that bound the two parties together with certain obligations, privileges, and rights. When husband and wife bind themselves together with vows in a covenant of marriage. They have a secure context in which to speak to each other honestly, boldly, even when they strongly disagree, knowing their union is not in jeopardy, they can maybe even risk a little chutzpah. The covenant God makes with Abraham is like that, a secure context in which Abraham can speak boldly to God. That's his covenant privilege and right. Because this covenant embraces Abraham's descendants as well, it's no surprise that we also find some chutzpah in later psalms of complaint over the lack of justice in a world where the wicked prosper. The righteous are pounded into the ground. We too are children of Abraham, according to Paul. 
through faith in Jesus Christ, bound to God in a new covenant from which no power can peel us away. For I'm convinced, says Paul, that nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Within the security of that covenant, God assures us that his loving presence envelops us like the atmosphere and he invites us to pray, even with the chutzpah of Abraham, fearlessly pouring out our hearts to him. Interesting, when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray, he tells them, about, he tells them a parable about a man who has the huts but to beg his neighbor for some bread at midnight because he has some friends to entertain. I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more I feel that life is a matter of dealing with loss. Sometimes so great and seemingly unfair, like the loss of a child, that I want to challenge the justice of God, like Abraham, until I come round again to admit that my understanding is limited, and to give thanks that as God's child, secure in his covenant love, he hears me out. And he can take the chutzpah. To understand more fully the story of Abraham and God's determination to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, we must also come to grips with the holiness of God and the matter of divine judgment. God says to Abraham, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous that I will go down to see if what they've done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. Note, God does not speak of the outcry from those cities as coming from any victims living there. Rather, the sin itself calls for judgment because God is a holy God. That's the outcry. Of all God's attributes revealed in scripture, good, just, loving, omnipresent, omniscient, sovereign, etc. His holiness stands out. God is holy. But what does that mean? At the risk of doing so too simply, let me suggest at least two things. First, it means that God is beyond us, transcendent, wholly other than what we are, greater than we can imagine. In his presence, we can only fall down and worship. 
the spectacular pictures from the new James Webb Space Telescope might well drive us anew to reflect on the holiness of God and sing, my God, how great thou art. Second, the holiness of God means that he is pure. Sin, neither Sodom and Gomorrah's nor our own for that matter, can survive in his presence any more than an old newspaper on the surface of the sun. And this leads to divine judgment. The holiness of God demands it. We acknowledge the judgment of God in our creeds as we did this evening, but do we give it much thought? If there is no final judgment, Christian friends, does God really regard us as anything above the salmon? Salmon are driven by instinct to swim up river and spawn. That's their life. They make no moral decisions. They face no judgment for the way they live. But we are created in God's image and likeness. Volitional creatures who must weigh moral choices and make decisions. In holding us accountable for the way we live, God shows respect for us as human beings above the salmon. And if there is no final judgment, is there really such a thing as justice? Remember Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible, about the witchcraft trials that took place in Salem Village, Massachusetts, back in 1692-93. Fanatical children accused some residents of giving themselves over to the devil. Adult leaders who should have known better bring them to trial. An elderly, wise woman, Rebecca Nurse, is convicted and sentenced to hang as a witch with several others. Among them, a young farmer named John Proctor. He makes a false confession at first in a desperate attempt to save himself, but he can't find it in himself to sign it. On the morning of their execution, he files out of the dungeon to the gallows in front of Rebecca Nurse. Fear weakens his legs, and he stumbles. And Rebecca Nurse encourages him in the only way she can 
Fear you not, John Proctor. There's another judgment waits us all. Without that other judgment, there are murderers and tyrants who really get away with it. And if there's no final judgment, the gospel makes no sense. And the cross of Christ is not necessary at all. A few years ago, my wife and I had the opportunity to sit for quite a long time in the Vatican's Sistine Chapel, taking in Michelangelo's huge painting of the final judgment on the front wall. The drama of the painting took us into the action. On the left, we saw the trumpets blaring the end and the dead rising and moving upward to the Lord Jesus Christ now returned to judge the living and the dead. They moved past God's people, many of them martyrs. Some are welcomed into that fellowship. Others receive the dismissive wave of Christ's hand. So stark, so awful. We could almost hear the words, depart from me. The condemned fall down the right side of the painting into perdition. Among them, a man who covers one eye as he falls, the remaining eye looking directly at us, reveals the remorse gripping his soul. The painting speaks powerfully of the holiness of God, the reality of divine judgment, and, and our need for a savior. Appropriately, the altar in the Sistine Chapel stands in front of the painting with a crucifix, reminding, reminding us of the sacrifice of Christ, his body broken and his blood shed for the complete remission of all our sins so that we can enter the holy presence of God as his beloved sons and daughters. Abraham demonstrates a measure of chutzpah in challenging the justice of God over Sodom and Gomorrah. But God demonstrates something beyond chutzpah in the boldness of his grace through Jesus Christ. Think of it. Abraham pleads for the righteous, Jesus pleads for the unrighteous, even as they're nailing him to a cross. 
For Abraham, the cost will be nothing. For God, the cost will be everything. Abraham hopes for 10 righteous people for the sake of Sodom and Gomorrah. God provides one righteous man, the incarnate Son of God, to die on the cross for the sake of the whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave. The boldness of God's grace rings like a chorus of great bells in the third chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans where he begins with the words, but now. For two chapters preceding those words, Paul describes in bleak detail the sinful human condition. The problem isn't ignorance, but rebellion. Gentiles can clearly see God revealed in the creation around them, but they choose to reject him, preferring gods of their own making. As a result, says Paul, God has given them over. It's an awful phrase, given them over to their own sexual impurity, shameful lusts, and depraved minds. Jews have the advantage of God's law and consider themselves better people than the Gentiles. But they're no better, says Paul, preaching one thing and doing another, their hypocrisy making the Gentiles curse God. And then Paul sums up the human condition. Lines like these. Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. There is no one righteous, not even one. All have turned away. There is no one who does good, not even one. How different from Abraham? Abraham suggests there might be 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. Paul says there isn't one righteous person in the whole world apart from Christ. We would therefore expect Paul to conclude his assessment of the human condition with a firm and now rather than but now. And now, God will destroy humankind more completely and fiercely than he did Sodom and Gomorrah. Instead, he says, but now. But now. A righteousness from God and not condemnation. A righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ 
to all who believe. There's no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, justified, made right with God freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Talk about the boldness of divine grace, the blessed chutzpah of the gospel. Believe it, Christian friends. Take it to heart and live in peace, confident that on the last day, the judge will be our savior, who's already made us right with God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that you are holy and that sin is a terrible thing. We are thankful, however, more than thankful that you've provided us a savior, Jesus Christ, who bore the punishment of sin in his own body, that we might be free, free of guilt, and right with you today, tomorrow, and forever. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.